Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cripple Stump. And today we have another guest for you. She, she's called Emmy, and uh, she, she'll introduce herself to all of you lovely people now. Hi, my name's Emmy. I am Northern Ireland representative and campaigns manager for Shield Us, which is a not-for-profit supporting CEB people um, all around the UK. And we supply free mental health support um, through our products, which we sell, um, which is our Shield Us lanyards, um, hoodies, badges, um, masks. Uh, we've got some school bags for kids going back to school. Um, and everything we make goes into raising awareness, campaigns um, for clinically extremely vulnerable. I've been a health advocate for 11 years um, and Freedom Day is coming and we've got a lot of very worried people right now. So just to get us started, so what, what does Freedom Day mean to you? For me personally, um, I, for me personally, it's a huge worry. Um, I am clinically extremely vulnerable. Um, my son um, didn't make the shielding list, but should have. Um, I've been very lucky in that our school has been incredibly supportive and my children have been able to stay home and continue to remote, remote learn throughout the whole pandemic. Um, obviously, with um, the transmission rate in schools, um, we have a lot of very, very worried CV parents that don't have that relationship with schools and have been unfortunately forced into sending the children to school and th threatened and facing fines in court, um, threatened and made sometimes to off roll. Um, then we've got with Freedom Day coming up. I know I feel like the very small things that I could do going out to our local parks with the children with masks now not um, being compulsory with social distancing, kind of gone. Um, nobody could tell looking at me that I'm CEV. A lot of us have invisible disabilities. Um, there's people with visible disabilities who will fully appreciate, you know, I am a wheelchair user, so I'm in a wheelchair. People would understand, but I'm not always in the wheelchair. It means Freedom Day for us and and I've spoke to a lot of people are feeling more like Freedom Day is Incarceration Day for us. The small, the small freedoms we had because of masks and because of social distancing and because of the government still supporting the fact that COVID, you know, these were mitigations that were needed. Now the government's more moved to uh, COVID's over and Freedom Day and get on with it and let's just open up it's given a false perception that covid's gone and it hasn't anything but we are now heading in, we're in our third wave we've got the delta variant it's escaping vaccines now i am severely immunosuppressed i have been told even after my second vaccine to continue shielding but shielding's not a thing Shielding's, shielding's not a thing. There's no support. There's never really been support. And that's where Shieldus has stepped up. There needs to be a support package. Freedom Day is terrifying our clinically extremely vulnerable. It's terrifying our disability community. You know, the focus is very much on their CEV, but not everybody knows their CEV status. Some people made the list first time and not the second, or vice versa, or they've been told they're not and then received two letters from another department that says they have. There's so much confusion and not enough talk about it. And again, our CEV and people who are at risk were never addressed, were never spoken to in these press conferences, which leaves us scrabbling for information. And that's really unfair as well. So Freedom Day, for me personally, no, it's not Freedom Day for me. And I know it's not Freedom Day for thousands, hundreds of thousands around the country. What does it mean for you? What do you feel about Freedom Day? I'm really interested. I, I think it's... Uh, Freedom Day means where the government's just had enough. And it's just like, you know, we, we've, we've, we've supported you as long as we can. And and now we now we just can't be bothered. It's not that we can't afford it; it's that we can't be bothered. 
and it's too 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 much of an infringement to to uh, you know protect the minority. We've got to yeah. look up to the majority. And the problem uh, is the, the the problem is we're seen as a minority, but given we know at least sixty percent of COVID deaths have been in our disabled and CV community. We're actually the majority of deaths. We yeah. are the people that are most affected by COVID. Yeah. But we're seen as a minority. Yeah. And it is the minorities that are going to suffer. This pandemic has laid bare all the inequalities that us in the disabled community have been banging the drum about for years. I'm sure you have been, I have been. The disability inequalities has always been there. We've got you know, are people who are living in, you know, the poorer areas, they're being more badly, you know, more badly in, impacted by COVID. There's always been inequality in this country. But this, with COVID coming along, it's really brought them to the forefront yeah. where where the support has been lacking in society. And now's the chance to actually do something about it. And unfortunately, the government's decided, Freedom Day, let's just get on with it. And where does that leave us? Where does that leave you? How do you feel about, you know, where do you feel it leaves you? What does it change in your life? I feel like it's making it, uh, putting the onus on individuals. Absolutely. And just turning people against other people. Absolutely. Because it's like, Turning you against your neighbour or your friend, or your your friend might want to go out, and you might be going, "Oh, I don't feel safe, or I don't want to do this," or they might go, "Oh, you're you're just being, you know, too scared to yep. to you you bought into the whole mindset of it rather than medically, because the truth is, although we've had this virus." For a long time, nobody really knows how, what it actually is. Still, no, there is still a novel. It's still not a novel virus. This is another thing that really, really drives me mad. Actually, especially when you take into account of long COVID. Now, I've been told my chances of survival of uh, if I was to contract COVID are very, very small um, on immunosuppressants or off it. I only just found out recently. Now, what are we? I'm I'm 18 months into shielding now. Yeah. And I just found out recently, I always thought my medication was what made me clinically extremely vulnerable. And I spoke to my care team about, you know, should I start another round of immunosuppressants given, you know, the cases are going up, you know, the Delta variant, how contagious it is would I be safer off of my immunosuppressive therapy? And I was told that I was more CAV without it. And my condition, I would never have thought, yes, I have my winter routines that I do because I'm immunosuppressed. Like a lot of people, the shielding's not new for us. We've always avoided the colds, the bugs, the nasties. We get our flu shot. We say to family members in the winter, you know, if you've got a cold, please don't come around. We've always done wash your hands when you come into the house. We've always been very, very, you've got our winter routines. The only difference is now is we've got a name for it. COVID's given our winter routines a name and it's called shielding. Yeah. A lot of people do have hidden and invisible disabilities, which makes it very, very difficult because a lot of people would never in a million years at the beginning, before, before COVID, would have thought their lives were in danger from a virus. So along comes COVID. And we've got hundreds of thousands of people who would never have thought their lives were in danger due to their medical condition. Being told there's a virus and it could kill you, go home, stay home. And we're terrified. And then there was the support at the beginning. There was community support. There was funding for the councils. That's all gone. We're now relying on friends and family. Not everybody's got a friends and family um, who can go to the pharmacy for them, who can go to go and get the food shop and priority delivery slots or, for supermarkets are going to be done away with. These are things that are needing to be kept. Um, it's incredibly difficult for people to be told to go home, shield, stay shielding, you're in danger, and then shielding to be ended 
but be told by the clinicians to continue shielding. So the government's asking you to go against life-saving medical advice because they don't want you to shield anymore and there's no support. So you're, it's a real postcode lottery whether there is any support in your area. Mm. How are you meant to continue shielding? Masks are going to be gone. Social distancing isn't going to be a thing. Yeah. The, the high streets are getting busier and busier, making it near impossible to, to socially distance. How are our clinically extremely vulnerable and our disabled community meant to access? It, it's not luxuries. It's essentials, food. How are they meant to, so we've got to fight for delivery slots. Or the pharmacy, not all pharmacies deliver. How are we meant to access these things without government support and without councils being given support to keep the volunteers, to keep, we're really relying on community effort. And believe me, there are some amazing community projects have come out of COVID. There are good things that have happened. Look what me and you are doing right now. We're, we're able to access each other. There's yeah. good lessons to be learned, and the people you learn the hard lessons from are the minorities, the ones that have been hardest hit, but nobody's talking to us. There are some amazing MPs out there who really care, but we we need we need an opposition in government. We, we really don't have an opposition right now we can turn to. Yeah. But and what what would you say to the government? What would you say to the government? I would say we need a full support package. We don't need just our food parcels that we had, which were fantastic in some areas, and some people were completely missed out and on their own. What we need is a full support package. We need a financial support package. A lot of our CEV are working age. We have a massive number of our CEV are working age who can't attend the workplace. There's no... Our health and safety officers were over the past, I think it's seven years, we've lost, um, I think it's over 40% of our health and safety inspectors. There was a study came out and any premises can expect to be um, you know, visited by a health and safety inspector once, I think it was every 175 years. Where are we meant to turn for these things? A lot of us have run out of um, SSP, um, sick pay. A lot of people felt that was completely discriminatory as well because yeah. if it wasn't for a virus yeah. that was endangering our lives, we yeah. would have been at work. To say we have to be at home on sick pay when the person, say, in the office next to you, because they weren't CAV, they were furloughed on full pay. So sick pay is run out for a lot of people. Most people, I don't, I'm actually not sure anybody who's on sick pay right now, so we're now forced to move into the universal credit arena. And we know that does not serve disabled people. Look at the European Courts of Human Rights. They've had enough to say about the universal scheme, universal credit scheme for our disabled community. It doesn't work for us. So what I would say to the government is, we don't just, we need a financial package. We need our employers to be supported financially to do right by us. Yeah. We need a mental health support package. Shieldus is the only place in the UK who are offering free immediate mental health support to our disabled and CEV community. We are not for profit, we're very, very small, we're grassroots, but we are serving our community the best that we possibly can. There's education, the guidelines are open to interpretation, we're barely written in there, not everybody's under consultant. If I know not in my school, I'm not the only person or the only family who has managed to have continued remote learning and not only continued remote learning. I've had access to every single teacher by mobile number at any point in any day that I need their help. I've also had phone calls just checking the pastoral care that I'm okay. How are you coping? Do you need anything? Can we help you? What can we do to help you? This can all be done. Work with our school communities, fund our schools to continue remote learning, stop fining our parents for protecting their lives and the lives of the children. These are things that can be done. And I would say that we need a track and trace system 
that actually that works. works. That actually yeah. works. Absolutely agree. You can't spend billions of pounds and give it to your friends, and give the contracts to your friends, and then have a system that doesn't work. What's really sad in me with the amount of money that's been pumped into all these contracts is not really none of those contracts have done anything to support the most at risk from COVID. And it I it actually makes me it makes me really upset to see it because we need the support. We're relying on community organisations, we're relying on organisations like ourselves, we're relying on family and friends. Yeah. And you don't even have to just look in this country, look look at how how they how they've what they've done with the foreign aid budget over the yep. last couple couple of days. So that's an indication of how they want to treat the poor of the world. Instead of giving them more money, more resources, more help, you, you, you're playing politics and you're cutting the foreign aid budget to save Absolutely. four £4 billion pounds where, when the track and trace system costs more than that. And it, it doesn't, doesn't work. work. It doesn't work. It doesn't... It's so infuriating because there are better ways to do these things. But without track and trace, I mean, another thing that's really frightened our CEV, um, talking about isolating and track and trace, is that NHS double jabbed NHS staff won't be asked to go in isolation if they've if they're pinged as a close contact. We know that the Delta variant is escaping vaccines. My friend is double jabbed. I found out yesterday he's contracted COVID. He's actually contracted COVID. He was pinged as a um. He was pinged as a close contact a couple of days ago. He did the right thing and went straight into isolation, told to get a test and found out yesterday he's positive. Is he okay? At the moment, we don't know. This is the thing. We've got the vaccines. Why did we not hold off? I think I read somewhere it would have taken four to four months possibly to reach vaccine. We know there's going to be vaccine escape. But when you're letting, we could have been at the point where we had as close to vaccine, and you heard immunity through vaccine. Yeah. Why hadn't we waited those four months? Why hadn't we put the money into the NHS? Why hadn't we put the money into the long COVID centres? There needs to be a lot more long COVID centres um, and a lot more support for long COVID. Why are we not putting the money into that instead of track and trace doesn't work? and just opening up. It makes absolutely no sense, and it endangers our lives. There's no other way to say it. Yeah, but but the thing is, we, we've known this government and the government before this. Since 2010, they've, they've hated the disabled community. So I agree with this, and it's a horrible... People think that we're fanatics or we're, we're, we're lefties or we're, we're socialists for saying these things. We're not. We feel like, in the, in the disability community, we feel like we have been pitted against the healthy. We've been made and portrayed to be strangers. We've been made and portrayed to be a burden on this society. Now, I don't know about you. Would you wish this on anybody? Would you wish your life on anybody? Would you wish to be disabled on anybody? I know I sure as hell wouldn't. I would not wish anybody to have to live a disabled life. It's hard. And it's harder because our government likes to uh, portray us as a burden. I wouldn't say the actual disability is a problem. I would say... No, that's what I mean. It's the actual, it's the actual government we live in. It's the perception that, in society that yeah. we are a lesser... Um, that, that we are lesser people. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing about CED as well. Our number grows every single day with new diagnosis. Our number doesn't get smaller, it gets bigger. Every single day. Where are these people meant to turn? Where are these people who have been diagnosed with cancer today meant to turn? Told that they've got to shield and they're clinically vulnerable. 
people and they've got to start new treatments. Where are these people meant to turn? Because the government's made it very, very clear that we're basically don't exist and are invisible now. Where are these people meant to turn? And it does come down to the same thing again, as you say, being made to feel like we are lower class citizens. Yeah. My health is hard. My immune system hates me. I'm not going to lie. My immune system absolutely hates me. It makes my life hard. It does make the normal things that everybody else takes for granted difficult. But what makes it more difficult is the fact that I feel completely abandoned by my government and the people that are meant to respect us and meant to support us and meant to see us and meant to represent us. They do not see us and they don't want to support us because if they did, there would have been a support package. We're 18 months into this. And enough campaigners are saying it and have been saying it all along. It, this might sound horrible, or it might sound too hyperbolic, but it, but it, to me, it feels like COVID's done the government a favour. COVID, the government, the this Tory government and successive governments have, have wanted to get rid of disabled people, and this is a way of getting rid of disabled people. I know that sentiment and I've heard that sentiment over and over again. I'm so sorry you feel like that. Nobody should be feeling like that. Nobody should be feeling like this is a perfect opportunity that's just been jumped on. But there is an argument to that and that's the long COVID aspect. Children are in schools right now, knowingly by the government. The government are knowingly infecting them with a novel virus. We know that between 8 and 9% of children will develop long COVID. We know that there's over a million right now today with long COVID. We know that at last estimate last week, there was 500 people a day developing long COVID because of the case numbers. They're disabling. This is just going to disable people. This is going to leave people with we don't know what, and the reason for that is it's still a novel virus. Today, a study came out saying they have actually managed to identify 200 symptoms associated with long COVID. Why is this government willing to expose its whole population yeah. to a disease, A, that can kill a healthy person, never mind a disabled person, B, that can get through the vaccines. Double vaccinated people are contracting through the Delta variant. C, why are they willing to expose our citizens, our children, with the prospect of long COVID? How is that? Where is the support going to be? Where's the support being for the ME community? Look what we have gone through. People, I, I, I have ME. Look what we have gone through to have our condition recognised. Why we do you think it is? Economy. Economy over health. Yes. But surely, if you to have, a, to have a good economy, you need to have people to be able to spend Healthy, money. Health. This is it. This is what infuriates me so much about the long COVID aspect. I mean... For me personally, long COVID, very, very, I'm incredibly worried about long COVID. I really am. If I was to survive, if I was to contract COVID, God forbid, and I was to survive it, there's a medical, would I be left for long COVID? How much of myself would I lose? That, yeah. That's a worry. You know, we're talking about disabling generations of people. We're talking about you know right now a million people in the UK. Does that make them CEV? Does that make them clinically extremely vulnerable? This isn't the first pandemic. It's not going to be the last, especially with the way we live now. Yeah. We're in overpopulated towns. Our schools have always been breeding grounds for infections and viruses and there's no investment being made into making our buildings healthier. Yeah. These are investments that need to be made now. But you're right. 
if we've now got a, a million people right now with long COVID, that's a million people who are not going to be able to contribute to society, whether that be through working or, con or consuming. How it makes absolutely no sense what the government are doing right now. Yeah, I can't understand it. They can claim that it's not economy, but they, that's the choice they've gone with is economy. But it's false economy. You're disabling people. You're giving people long COVID. A lot of people are still reporting symptoms a year later. You're knocking these people out of being able to contribute to the society, to society which is going to impact the economy. So it makes absolutely no sense. And as I'm listening to this, one question that comes to mind is, how do you keep going? Somebody needs to stand up for us. Somebody, for me personally, I have been, my, my young, youngest, this is how I got into where I am. My youngest was um, born with an incredibly rare um, congenital uh, um, uh, structural abnormality. And this was back in the AOL days. <laughs> um, back when, <laughs> you know, there was like six chat rooms um, on that. That was the internet. But um, when he was born, there wasn't anybody else in the country who had his um, abnormal, structural abnormality and nobody knew anything about it. They discovered it and went, well, we know nothing about it. So I went digging. I was determined that this could be, something could be done. There'll be other case studies around the world. And I managed to get in contact with Boston State Children's Hospital for Children who um, had the surgeon there had actually developed the surgery to correct this abnormality. It's called a laryngeal cleft. From that, I managed to um, create a message board for other um, parents around the world. And within six months, we had um, 130 families um, with angioclefts all around the world. We then discovered a lot of them had the same um, comorbidities and wrote a gold standard and tried to um, collate data and Eventually, we, I was able to get my son um, his surgery and he was the first person in Northern Ireland to have a laryngeocleft repair. From there, he's been on the Diagnostic Odyssey, which is an incredibly lonely place when your child doesn't have an overall diagnosis but is medically complex. From there, I've got into rare disease campaigning and advocacy. Um, and then the pandemic came around and discovered that there was very little for clinically extremely vulnerable people. I know what it's like to be alone and to feel like you've nobody to turn to. And I never want anybody in any walk of life to ever feel that way. And that's what keeps me going, is helping people find the support that they need, but also having people who are willing to give these people a voice and represent them yeah. and that's what keeps me going and when there's so much injustice and there always has been and it's time for change look what came out of the spanish flu we had the roaring 20s this there was so much evolved it, it, the world changed after that we've got a real chance to do that again yeah. And I just feel like the right choices aren't being made for the people that it's affected most. And that's how I keep going. That's, that's, that's what does it for me. I've got to keep going. I've got to keep supporting. Are you, are you okay? I've had my health has had a few batterings. I'm not going to lie. You do get, you do get burned out. Because I just feel that people that do so much for other people never get asked that question. Genuinely, are, are you okay? And sometimes... You know what? Very, very few. We've got a great support network at Shield Us. Shield Us is a really, really tight-knit little organisation and family. And we're all there because we either are clinically extremely vulnerable or we live with somebody who's clinically extremely vulnerable or we have clinically extremely vulnerable children. And everybody gets it there and everybody's a great support. And we do have a really big rule that our lives have to come first. You know, we have to look after ourselves or we can't keep going. Yeah. 
but we don't get asked if we're okay. And thank yeah. you for asking. I'm not going to tell you that I sleep well every night because I don't. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you that I don't. I don't work 18, 19 hour days because yeah. I do. I'm not going to say that I don't spend hours on the phone with CV people um, around the country who are in an absolute crisis because I do. And it does take its toll, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. But it's very important. I always think for people to be asked how are they doing and like who who looks after the people that look after other people, you know? You, know, you have to have a really, are. you have to have a good support network to do this. Yeah. And I'm not, I had to take 10 weeks off due to ill health. Yeah. Like I said, I've got an immune system that absolutely hates me. One of the worst things for an immune system that hates you and wants to set everything on fire is stress. <laughs> and I've had three incredibly bad flare-ups of my condition. And it has all coincided with shielding ending. Yeah. Or, you know, it has, and it's really difficult, and it's, and it's frustrating. But how are you doing? I'm really, and I, I do ask people how they are, because... Being heard is being heard for you is really important. Yeah, I, I'm okay. You know, it just when when you hear about other people's stories, it it kind of puts your own story on the in the background. Really, it's like it puts it into some kind of perspective, and it and it's kind of reassuring in a way. It's, that you're not alone, that you're not, you're not crazy, yeah. you're not... Oh, you're God, not, you're not. You're not just I, pissing in the wind, you know? No, definitely not. I mean, we've got an amazing coalition um, of organisations. You know, it's not just our organisation. You know, we've got Safe Ed for All, we've got Long COVID Kids, we've got CDC yeah. Families. We're all working together and we're all coming at it from different angles, yes, for yeah. different but all for the same reason. Yeah. And knowing that, that, that we're out there doing that, you know, knowing that we can have these conversations now. I'm hoping yeah. you do this probably for the same reason I do this, that you hope somebody hears this and goes, wow, it's not just me. I'm not, I'm not alone here. I'm, yeah, yeah. That, it's the reason for keeping going, but you're right. I mean, it, it can really take its toll at times. It really can. Yeah. And and it's really really important for people to share experiences. I wanted to ask you, how long has the website and and your organisation been going then? Okay, so um, our founder Nina, um, her children have PCD, um, lung condition, and she started in um, March twenty twenty, and the idea came about because um, her children. Um, I'd said, you know, but we look okay. We don't look ill. People would never know. And that gave her the idea of, yeah, invisible disability. And, and people wouldn't know. So she came up with the idea of creating a symbol that people could wear um, to show that they were needing space, needing respect. And um, that's how it was. It, it all was born. Um We've been on the go since then, and it's just grew and grew and grew. Um, as I said, we are grassroots. We, you know, we've got we've got a great team now, really, really working hard. Um, we've got a pack for schools that we've put together, which is an education pack about what um how to support a clinically vulnerable child or family, because long absence affects um every sixth um classroom chair will be affected by long absence from school. Again, shielding's not new. Long absence is not new, but there's very little support for it. So we're really about educating and raising awareness um, of the need that shielding isn't new and to try and get some understanding as well and really represent um, where we are. Like we've just launched, a, we're launching a campaign called We Are The Shielding. Please use the hashtag Take a picture of yourself, tag us in it, and try and get somebody else to see if you do it too. Because we need to put a face to who we are. You wouldn't look at me and know that I'm clinically extremely vulnerable. 
yeah. <clears throat> you know, so we're trying to put an awareness campaign out that it's people from all walks of life. Uh, what did you do before uh, the, uh, before this? Like before this, I've been helping in the rare disease community. So any campaigns that have been going, I've um, been involved in. You know, getting it out there, sharing it. I'm very much <clears throat> because I've been doing this for so long. Um, I know a lot of people in um, you know disability campaigning and um, rare disease world. Um, I've written um, <clears throat> a few articles for Rare Revolution magazine. Um, which is a magazine that covers all rare diseases. It's a place for everybody. Um, and before that, as I said, it was um, laryngeal cleft and um, special needs. As I said, both my children have and my younger boys have um, special needs. So I've always been very, very involved in, in the special needs community. And again, any campaigning or support, um, a big part of support groups and offering parents. I'm a great believer in that we really are ex like experts in our own health. We're experts um, in our children's health. Right. And for parents or people who have become um, ill all of a sudden, we've been doing this for years. You know, this has been my life for years and I'm a great believer in paying it forward, pay forward what you've learned. They're the best experience is lived experience. And that's a big part of what I do as well, um, try and just pay forward the things that work, the things that don't work. Um, and again, it's all any campaigns at all. I'm usually I'm usually there somewhere and about them. <laughs> it's just good to get a picture of people for, for everyone and to get context. That's why I'm asking. And, uh, yeah. and uh, the thing is, uh, do you think people's... I'm more willing to listen to you now or were they more willing to listen to you like a few years ago? In terms of the receptions, how do you think that's changed or has it? Working with Shieldus, so I manage Shieldus NI mm -hmm. and I in December was able to um, represent our clinically extremely vulnerable um, to our health committee. Yeah. And from there, I have been working with my health committee in Northern Ireland, um, who have been incredibly supportive and really do want to know. Um, I would say that the pandemic has shown people in who are maybe in power or in power or, or a position of privilege or working within government that there really is inequality and injustice whereas before it was talked about but as I said the pandemic's really really like you, you can't deny it you can't you can't put blinkers on and pretend it's not there you can if you're that person who is willing to do that but I found that a lot of people um especially within government then um, as I said there's some incredible MPs um who are champion absolutely champion um at getting our questions into parliament and things like that the clinically extremely vulnerable, I hate saying label, but that's what we have been labelled. And again, a lot of people resented that as well and never felt they were ever vulnerable before. Um, has given us campaigners maybe a bit more of a voice with people who are willing to listen and want to listen, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's, it's finding the people that want to listen. That's the hard part. And are there, are there those people out there? There is. Far? Yes. Um, um, the APPG on coronavirus have been incredible and we're actually um, going to be um, giving evidence um, to them. Um, I think it's the 21st of July. Um, there, are, there are parliamentary groups that are listening and want to listen. It's how far... We can take that. It's okay putting all this on record, but we need action. And I don't mean to sound ungrateful for the people who are trying for us because they are. I don't, and I, I hope that doesn't come across ungrateful um, and unappreciative because I'm appreciative of anybody who is willing to raise our issues and fight for us, but we need action. And that's the hardest part. You know, we're up against guidelines. Guidelines are open to interpretation. 
we need more than guidelines. We need solid, firm action that recognises and isn't discriminatory. This is the big thing. So, yes, people are more people are listening, I would say, than they were before. We've always had our champions, you know, um, MPs who have got it and been fantastic and been supportive of our families, and especially at community level. We need this to go bigger. We need this to go bigger. Yeah, but when you talk about being appreciative, appreciative, I always makes me a bit uh, wary because I'm like, we shouldn't be like, it shouldn't be relying on people's good nature. We shouldn't. Absolutely. It shouldn't be about having being lucky and having a nice person. They should be doing it regardless. I agree. Um, politics is politics. This is the difficult part. Politics is politics. There's party lines. There always is. But there are individual MPs out there who are really, really, really getting it. But you're right in what you're saying. I find, and I don't know if you find this, and I'm interested again. I, I mean, I love talking to people and finding out more about them and their views and how they find this this environment. Yeah. But when you are talking to media or you are doing things like this or you are, um, you know, talking to health committees and things like that, you do, I don't know if you struggle sometimes to not come across bitter or angry because... <laughs> yeah. It's a it's a fine line. You do have to say. Now I am appreciative, and I always will be of anybody who is willing to represent our minorities. Always, always will be. But it's incredibly frustrating as well. And I don't know if you find that difficult. That sometimes you've got to be very careful of your language. Yeah. Is that something that you would find in yeah, what yeah. you do? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do find it fascinating. I do, um, incredibly frustrating, and the people that we do talk to and are listening and collaborating are fantastic people. Yeah, but we're all up against the same thing right now. We need change now. We need action now. Yeah, how do we make this happen? With we we need stronger numbers. We need you know we need to be represented and we need action and it's incredibly frustrating and a a last couple of questions from me Uh, one of the questions I I wanted to ask you you might be Mm -hmm. sick of answering this question but how has Brexit uh, affected the whole things (sighs) it's detracted a lot of media attention from what we are facing. I, I That's a personal opinion. I mean, I'm talking personally. I'm not talking as shielders right now. Um, personally, I feel that it's been a fantastic distraction and that the stories that should be in the mainstream media aren't because of Brexit. This should be headline news. You know, there has been headlines, but we've been talking about this for months. You know, Freedom Days brought this up and brought it into the media again. And I'll be the next Brexit story, though. We'll detract from it all again. You know, this has been happening all the way through the pandemic, that we've had discrimination, we've had people abandoned, we've had people left at home with no food parcels coming because they were missed off the council list. This isn't... We've been doing this for 18 months and I feel that Brexit has always been a good one to kind of tie out into the newspapers whenever there's something else to be not, the government don't want talked about and it's very, very, very frustrating. That's how I feel about it personally. So you feel Brexit Brexit gets used as a distraction tactic, is that what you're saying? It can be, but Brexit has caused nothing but chaos in this country. Yeah. So as much as it needs to be talked about, and I fairly believe that it does, and I do fairly believe that it is going to cause us no end of problems, 
there's no solution coming for it quickly in Northern Ireland. You know, we've got the Northern Ireland Protocol and um, that's not going well and it isn't going to go well and nobody knows how that's going to affect anything. And that's, it's taken, I would, what I'm trying to say is I feel that because of Brexit and because um, of, it, I feel that it's taken away valuable time from our parliamentarians to act on the pandemic. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So, yeah, I don't like Brexit I, and the fact yeah, that it's... I just wondered what you what you thought being there on the ground, you know? Yeah, I mean, as I said, personally, I do... That, that's, that's my frustration with it. Um, you know, we could have held this off due to the pandemic. It was offered. And I feel like a lot of focus... Of any, I feel right now any focus which has taken our our people in power away from dealing with a deadly pandemic that is killing our citizens and disabling our citizens, I feel like that it's it's taken valuable time away from the pandemic response, and that's my frustration with it. I understand that there's so much more to Brexit than what I am saying, but personally for me, I feel that an awful lot of session sitting time for our MPs and MLAs um, is, has been used on Brexit when really it could have been put on hold to deal with this pandemic. That's my view on it. And I would just like to ask you, because we, we could have a global audience, what would you say to to the people around the world about the pandemic situation in, in the UK? I read a lot of international media because um, we tend to get quite a lot more information sometimes. Um, and, and, and I know that's wrong and it shouldn't be that way. When you see headlines from, you know, the Netherlands saying, you know, as the UK lost its mind, when you see CNN headlines saying that the UK government's experimenting on its citizens, <sighs> For us CAV people, we feel incredibly, incredibly helpless right now. We feel that we are being forced back into shielding, forced with no other options. Don't get me wrong, there are some CAV people out there um, that have had both vaccines, spoke to their clinicians, are working with their employers and are able to rejoin society and, and feel safe to do so and have all the support from occupational health to make their, their work a safe environment. Fantastic, and I'm so happy. But there's a massive number of of us who have never stopped shielding, and it's just been made more more difficult. I really worry about the human rights aspect of what the UK government are are actually planning to do. In that, and I'd be really interested to talk to anybody who is um, human rights about this. Where are our human rights in this? And that's what I'd like to put to the global community. What do they, I would be interested to hear what they think about UK citizens' human rights right now. Do they, do they see it as a human, right, a human rights breach? Um, and the fact that Article 2 and Article 12 are quite clear. And it would be a very interesting conversation. And what worries me the most and this is a global problem. What's happening, about to happen in the UK, we're being warned it's going to create more variants. More variants are a worse nightmare for the, vac the global vaccine program. How, with the global, how are the global community feeling right now having their own country's vaccine program threatened by the UK's actions? You know, we've got the Delta variant, which we're being told has got at least, I think it's a thousand times the viral load of the Alpha, which is now dead. <sighs> what variants are going to come out of this? This is a global problem. And I wonder what it'll take. Will we end up back in another lockdown because we have no choice? You know, there's talk of 
preparation for the fourth wave this is going to cause. How is that okay? How is that? How, it's going to affect the rest of the globe, what we're about to do. <laughs> this is probably a difficult question, but where, where, well, do you think will be happening in five years' time? Five years' time. We're going to know a hell of a lot more about COVID by then, I hope. <laughs> That'd be good. Uh, uh. Um, five years' time. I think we'll be in five years' time learning the lessons. I think it's going to take that long to go back and reassess what countries got it right, what countries got it wrong, what needs to be done. I think, obviously, there's talk of the inquiry into the government's handling of the pandemic. I think it's going to be very surreal in five years' time to look back at us, our own lives. You know, in five, you know, in five years' time, I'm hoping we've got vaccines at work. I'm hoping we've got vaccines and antibody treatments that work for people who can't have the vaccines. As we know, COVID's not going anywhere. We're going to have to eventually once we have got the treatments and the antivirals and the preventatives, learn to live with COVID. I hope in five years' time we've got that. Do you, talking about learning lessons, do you think we've learned any lessons in 18 months as a government? I'd like to say yes, we have. There's no way we haven't. <laughs> I think what we should have learned yeah. is follow the science. I think... As a population, I think we've learned a hell of a lot about our government. Yeah. More than our government's learned anything about our population. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah, but I uh, I think we've learned we learned lessons that we've learned them as well. It, absolutely. I, I feel and like eighteen months is a, a long and short time at the same time. If you get mm -hmm. what I mean, just like eighteen months we've. We learned something for the first three months and then we've all, we've all learned it again. Yeah. It become political. Yeah. And, and and what shocks me is how how something like this, which is life which is literally life or death, yeah. can become can still be political. My feeling, and I'm not the only person that feels this, and I've had this conversation with lots of people. When masks became political, yeah. uh, when masks became political, the science went out the window. Yeah. Once it was a political statement to wear a mask, which is on at that point, at that time, yeah. a known mitigation that could save somebody else's life. It was protecting others you wearing a mask. Once it became political, empathy went out the window. Yeah. Understanding went out the window. And the science went out the window. You know, when you've got the CMO saying this is going to cause a massive increase in cases and it's going to cause, as he called it, a great concern, the amount of long COVID this is going to cause. He's our CMO. He is in a position where he should be able, and I know they're going to, I understand the science, scientific community can't affect you know, political policy, but that's, that, that, that's the night and day of it. You've got Boris Johnson calling it Freedom Day, but on the same day, you've got our CMO giving an address to, um, I, I can't remember what it was, it was a summit of some sort, talking about, you know, the next epidemic of long COVID due to opening up. Yeah. That's a, a million people right now are, are disabled by long COVID. And they're saying that number's growing by five and the cases are, numbers are going to get higher, you know, to say that they're willing to infect, was a hundred, how many cases a day did they say? A hundred thousand a day? A hundred thousand a day. 
100,000 people a day. Uh, and, it, and it's just like, they just keep saying that. that they just Like it's okay. Prepare, prepare like it's, yeah. But what about our NHS in this? Yeah. What about our NHS in this? I told you, they've, they've, just, got, they've just given up. They've got hospitals and black alerts. We've yeah. got hospitals saying that right now it's like the worst winter pressures right now. Yeah. Look at the paediatric beds. We don't have paediatric ICUs. We have got children going into paediatric ICUs right now with COVID, yeah. which they've contracted at school. We've had children die of COVID, which they've, you know, this isn't okay. It's the narrative that because we're saying it's not okay, that we're some fringe movement. Yeah. That's not okay. But in the disability community, we know what that feels like. We've always been made to feel yeah. like we're some fringe movement. But the people that are trying to stand up against this and say, no, you know, we, we've got the citizen where um, the, the letter was put into the Lancet, challenging the government. These are the people we need to be listening to. They shouldn't, it shouldn't be a fringe. It's been signed by over a thousand scientists around the world. Yeah. It, tells you this is wrong but people are starting to wake up a little bit to what we've faced for a long time and the fact that we're very powerless in this country mm -hmm. to stand up for our rights and freedom of speech as much as it's said be freedom of speech freedom of speech is a very very hard thing yeah. to to achieve without being censored or like I was saying before having to pick your words very very carefully so you're not branded as some lunatic yeah. <laughs> you know it's really really difficult and that's why these podcasts podcasts have been an amazing thing because it gives people a chance to come in and sit and have an open honest conversation without being censored it's a great way of reaching people. And honestly, kudos to you because I think this is amazing. I think it's an, and it's a service as well, as much as, you know, it's a podcast. I think podcasts could be the way for campaigning in the future. I really see a lot of podcasts coming up. Shield us are about to start our podcast as All well. Right. Um, yeah, we're about to be starting our own pod podcast called Shield and Stories. Um, the first one we're going to be covering is immunosuppression, okay. and so it's going to be a very, that's a huge topic. And it's the public health agency came out with a figure that seventy four people are percent seventy four percent protected um, by vaccines, and it's not right and it's not true, and um, it's now been not redact not retracted, but it's been corrected, and the public health agency had to come out and say, you know, that. There's so many reasons for being immunosuppressed, and that was just kind of, you know, that's the, it's not right. It's not the right figure. And it was a really, really irresponsible thing to do. And I'm very angry about it. Um, because we do know that I've been told I won't have an antibody response um, to the vaccines. I've been told to get them just in case, you know, it might work. Um, but to continue shielding afterwards, um, immunosuppression is a huge, huge thing right now. And people are immunosuppressed for so many reasons. So many reasons. And again, um, Vicky Foxcroft had asked again to the Secretary of State for support for us immunosuppressed, asking for the government to provide us with antibody testing. There are people out there trying to get us heard and trying to get us the right support, but the response was like, the response was so poor. So poor. Yeah. And another one for me then. What do you do to chill out? YouTube. I get down that YouTube rabbit hole. All right. <laughs> I'm terrible for it. Um, no, I have a thing um, where I try and watch a TED Talk every day. And I love TED Talks because yeah. you can just, and I'm not, I, I just click on whatever comes into my inbox. I love TED Talks because you always learn something new, whether it's something you're interested in or a subject you haven't ever listened to before. They have quick lightning talks, so it can be five minutes. And if that's all I've got in my day is five minutes, at least I've had five minutes self-care. Self-care, self-care, self-care is so, so important, especially right now. It doesn't matter whether you're a campaigner or you're not. It doesn't matter where you are, what walk of life you're in. Yeah. You need self-care right now. This is an incredibly stressful time to be alive. 
and you need to look after yourself. So yeah. that is one of my big ones. And yeah, I mean, you, 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 yeah, that. And I do quite a lot of mindfulness. I, I try and look after my mental health the best I can. Um, do a lot of meditation and mindfulness as well. And audiobooks, because you can be running about the house and doing everything you need to do and still listen to an audiobook with your headphone in. Yeah. Good tip. <laughs> and, and is there anything finally you would like to say before we close? I'd like to say thank you to you and thank you for asking me on and thank you for running this podcast. As I said, podcasts, I think, are the way to reach people right now. Um, it's not easy to reach people. Um, and I'd also like to say thank you for asking me how I am because you're right, not a, it's not a question that's asked very often. Okay. Uh, so I would just like to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for agreeing to come on, and I'm giving you the space to speak, so thank you. You have. You're a wonderful interviewer. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. <laughs> okay, bye-bye, everyone. Hope you kind of enjoyed that in some sort of way. Okay, bye. Bye-bye.